Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Okay. Are we ready for the word? Amen. Genesis chapter 29. Making our way through it. We still got a ways to go, though. <laughs> It'll still be a while. And all of it's so good, but it's tough, too, when you get to a place where you're really excited for something that you know is really a long ways away from a teaching perspective. And I'm like, oh, man, Lord, that's going to take a while. But it gives you sort of, you, you pick up on these little things, and you're like, oh, that's going to be so good. But that's like a year away. <laughs> so you have to have really good notes. Like, write that down somewhere where I'll remember. Uh, so making our way through Genesis here, Genesis chapter 29. Um, I think we'll make a good ways here tonight. There's a portion of this we'll go through fairly quickly. Um, yeah, here we go. Let's go ahead and read together um, the first few verses here. Uh, as we come to Genesis 29, we're on the heels of Jacob's vow at Bethel and the encounter he had with God, and now he's setting out from there. In verse 1 it says, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place. On the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Here at the beginning, as I mentioned, Jacob has just had an encounter with God. And scripture tells us that Jacob here, he went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. The text here literally reads that he lifted up his feet. And it's important that we look into this. Some of your Bibles may even have a note in the margin that speaks to this. In the Hebrew, this has the connotation of happy feet. Now, you may think of the little movie about penguins or something dancing around who have happy feet. Um, and I suppose that would imply in, in, in some respects here. And, and it really is that he was excited now to continue on his journey. Why was he now excited to continue on his journey? Why was, why was Jacob here now ready to lift up his feet and with happiness continue on in his journey? Because remember, as his, as his uh, journey set out, as it began, there was two purposes initially for him. One was to flee from Esau, his brother. He was fearing for his life. His brother said, I'm going to kill you. So that's not exactly a happy journey, Right? And then the second one was to find a wife of the daughter of the daughters of Laban. Now that may have been somewhat of a happy goal for him to think, but at the same time I got to think that's probably pretty intimidating as well. Hey, you're going to just go travel and, and get a wife, right? So he's setting out as we considered last week early on in his journey somewhat lonely, somewhat afraid, somewhat ashamed, no doubt. And then Jacob has an encounter with God. And, and to recap from last week, I think it's a wonderful thing when God takes us out of our comfort zone. He takes us away from the familiar. He gets us off and alone. 
And that's often where we have the most incredible encounters with God. And, and, and in the case of Jacob, I, I believe that this was a conversion moment for him. I think this is where God really became real to him. Um, not that he doubted God's existence necessarily, but that had he truly given his life to the one true God of Israel. Had he truly come to a place where he said, okay, this is, this is who God is. And I know I had this, and I won't belabor it this week as I've shared it before, but you know, that was the case for me. God, got, God had to get me alone. That was the case for Ashley and I both. That God did, we, we, here we were in, in plotting our life together far earlier than we probably should have. And God knew that he needed to get us apart. He needed to get us separate. He needed to get us alone in order to do a work in our lives. And, and for me, it was very much in a place where I was alone, lonely, afraid. And here God shows up. And now it's a wonderful thing when God does this in our lives. And so Jacob has an encounter with God, and he's learning here now of God's faithfulness. And he declares then that indeed this God is my God. If, if God is going to be faithful to me in this way, if, if, this is, if this is a God who is going to meet me in this way, then surely this is my God. And he sets out then with a renewed sense of life. And he sets out on the remainder of his journey with confidence, with happy feet. And you know, some of us need, some of us need a fresh encounter with God. Some of us need happy feet. You know, maybe, maybe you've come to a place in your walk where um, you're dealing with some difficulties. And it's in those moments that not only when we encounter God perhaps for the first time, but even again and again when we find ourselves in difficult places that we can say, Lord, I, I need to meet with you. I need an encounter with you. Would you remind me, Lord, of your faithfulness? Would you remind me of your promises? And, and when he does in such a gracious way, we lift up our feet and we can set out again, refreshed and renewed for the journey that he's set us upon. And so here Jacob sets out. And, and the thing is, is we, we need to remember, just like anybody we've seen before this, especially in the line of, of Jacob here, whether it was his father or his grandfather, is that uh, this begins a process of sanctification. By no means has Jacob arrived. God still has plenty of work to do in Jacob's life. Um, but this was certainly a turning point. And so Jacob does need to walk the path of sanctification. And we'll see that, especially over these next few chapters. But he's setting out uh, with somewhat of a renewed sense of, of purpose and excitement as well as we'll see here even in the next uh, few verses. And so he looked and he saw a well in the field and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it for out of that well they watered the flocks. And a large stone was on the well's mouth as we've read. And so the sheep are, are, would be gathered there and what they would do is, and not all wells were this way, but this particular well, they would cover it with a stone. And, and so there was a particular time in which they would all come. And, and Jacob says to them in verse four, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And so Jacob at this point knows that he's arrived. This has to be music to his ears a bit as he thinks, okay, I'm finally my journey uh, is coming to an end. And, and so then he says to them in verse five, do you know Laban, the son of Naor? And they said, we know him. And so he's going to be even getting more excited. Okay, great. I've found some people who are familiar with, with Laban. And so he said to them, is, is he well? Uh, he wants to know, is he, is he in is he doing well? Is he, is he sick? Is he alive? Um, and they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Such, in, the, in these moments, such is the evidence of God's leading and of God's sovereignty, right? In these moments here for Jacob, he's got to be thinking, if he's like you and me, he's got to be going, oh, look at this. How perfect is that, right? 
Now, some people call this serendipity, right? Some call it that. We call it God's leading, God's sovereignty. We call it God, right? These are those God moments that some of you talk about. When you know there's just no other way. How in the world could these events have, have, have happened the way that they did? That's one of the things I love about going on mission trips. And those of you that have been on mission trips can testify to it. The way in which it's just like, man, God is there. I mean, when we went on our Ethiopia mission trip, it was crazy. I mean, we gathered everybody up here at the church before we headed out, right? We had, how many people we have on that trip? 18 on that one? 18 people heading to Ethiopia. That's a journey, folks, okay? Just let me tell you that. That is a journey. You know when you're leaving here, you're like, people, you, the whole are we there yet sort of, like, you know, how long is this going to take you to tell people, like, it's going to be a long time. Like, settle in. It's going to be a long time, okay? And so, yeah, we've got, we've got a van, and we've got a truck, and we've got a trailer, and I specifically pray, and it was just on my mind. I'm like, please, people, pray. No flat tire. Just no flat tire. I don't blow a lot of tires, okay? But I'm just thinking, please, Lord, no flat tire. Please. Pray, everybody pray. We're on the edge of Atlanta and on the not-so-good edge of Atlanta, okay? And very subtle. What was that? And then all of a sudden, bing, a little tire pressure light, and I'm like, okay. And we begin to pull off. And again, in an area where typically you would kind of go like, I don't know, this might not be good, right? And we pull off, and we pull up to a gas station, and sure enough, I get out, and it's just, I mean, that sucker's just, at this point, it's done, (laughs) right? And I'm like, okay. And then so Reggie, Reggie, we we are tire and ladder ladder buddies now, okay? And um, I got to speed this up, I'm sure. Um, And so we get out, and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to be, Mackenzie, we attempted to be like a NASCAR pit crew, okay? We were like, let's do this. And we're under that truck, and, 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 well, the spare would not come off. I mean, that thing was on there, right? It was on there. And we're like, this is not good. We literally have an international flight to catch. There's not a bunch of flights just going to Ethiopia, okay? And so we're starting to get frustrated. We're starting to panic a little bit, and it's like, okay, we got to pray. We got to pray, right? Now, here's the deal. Ultimately, listen, we made it. In the process of, of us going through this, this trial that really, I think, in many respects, I needed to thank the other 17 people that are along with me for having to endure what the Lord needed to do in my own life, right? To just to say, Brennan, you're going to trust me? But in the process of doing that, we met the owner of the gas station. Where was he from? Ethiopia. We met several other people that were coming to get gas who decided they wanted to be a blessing. So, they went to get, a lady went to get clothing to provide for the trip. She, she was offering up anything that we needed. She went and bought snacks. She bought drinks. She wanted to be able to just bless this team that was going to serve. And we're in, a, we're in a bad part of town, right? So not only are we interacting with people who are just totally blessed by the experience there, but then it allowed the other group that was meeting us there to actually get to the airport in advance of us and to my brother who was going along with us, who, who is a federal agent, was able to talk with people there at the airport to get them ready to receive what was a big trailer that was about to come in with, we wanted humanitarian tickets, so all 18 passengers were able to bring three pieces of luggage. So we said everybody has to use two of those for big totes to bring supplies, okay? So we had 36 totes on top of the luggage and man, I've never had a check-in experience at an airport that was that amazing. 
because like we pulled up and they just rolled out and doof, 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 and they were all ready because they were prepared for us. I, mean, I tell all you that to say when you see those things, when you encounter those things, you go, there is a God, right? That's not just chance. That's not just, oh, look how these things fell together. Isn't that coincidental? No, that's God saying, watch what I can do. Would you just trust me? And I love those experiences. I look forward to going on the next trip because I'm like, Lord, I just can't wait to see what you're going to do. And so here, Jacob's arriving. He's been on a journey for days. He's traveled mile upon mile upon mile. And he gets into town and they're like, oh, yeah, right there. And here she comes walking up. So Jacob's excited at this point. Okay. He's excited because here comes Rachel. And as we'll find out, Rachel's pretty good looking. He's excited about this daughter of Laban who's coming to meet him. And so then he says in verse 7, look, it is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. Some suggest, and I think this is maybe fair, though speculation certainly, that he's saying to the men, look, it's time for you guys to go. I've got to have a conversation. And so they said, well, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, verse 8, and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob now in this moment with a, with a, with a feat of strength that comes from the excitement of having arrived and, and seen this beautiful young lady, says, Aha, I'll roll this stone away. I'll get this process going here. Right? So Jacob, who was, uh, had been accustomed to dwelling in tents, he was a mama's boy. He didn't get out in the field like his brother. He was in the kitchen most of the time. Here he's coming up and he's saying, this is my chance. And so he rolls the stone away from the well and he, he's prepared to help water, uh, water the sheep. And so there's an excitement here for Jacob as clearly evidenced in verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. It was a little quick, in my opinion. And he lifted up his voice and wept, right? Verse 11 makes me think, settle, Jacob. (laughs) Take it easy. Play it cool, right? Now, of course, there was a cultural component here. It's not as if it was this incredible embrace. And he, no doubt, greets her in a way that's appropriate. And he, and he lifts up his voice. He, he weeps. He's, he's giving praise to God. And remember, he's on this journey here. The last leg of his journey is one with happy feet. He's had an encounter with God. Now he sees God's provision. He sees God's hand upon him. Here now Rachel's coming to him. He's thinking, how can he do anything but weep? And that's the wonderful thing about when God is so active in our lives, when God is moving in this way, and we see his hand upon us, and we see how he's orchestrating orchestrating circumstances and bringing things to pass that we can't help but rejoice. We can't help but praise Him. We can't help but give Him worship. And, and that, to me, is, is an indication of a healthy walk with the Lord. That's an indication of a true conversion. That's an indication of, of having a real relationship with God when you see these things and you give Him praise. So here, he has this encounter then with Rachel and in verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. And so she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And so he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. 
And so here now as he encounters his family there and they make the introductions and Laban here is, is no doubt remembering when uh, uh, gifts were given for his own sister, uh, when the, the servant of Isaac had, had come and, and sought out Rebekah. And, and so now Laban's got to be thinking, wow, all this time that's gone by and, and here he is and, and the memory's coming back. And he welcomes him in. He says, yes, your family. And, and so uh, Jacob settles in there and he stays with him for, for a month's time. And after that month goes by, in verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? So it seems apparent that Jacob was, was, he was helping out. He got in the mix. He was, he was serving. He didn't just sit around. He was willing to, to, to participate, to do the chores, to serve. And, and Laban says, listen, I'm not going to expect you to do this for nothing. Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, no doubt Laban at this point has a sense of why he's come. It's not entirely lost on him, what he may be seeking after. And Laban, it says in verse 16, had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Now Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Leah's eyes were delicate. There's a variety of opinions on this and what exactly this means. The predominant theories are that either she had, in fact, poor eyesight, um, or that in some respects she was not considered as attractive. Now, given the comparison that follows that says that Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance, uh, I, I think uh, we can see that uh, to some degree it was perhaps a bit of, of both. Uh, the Hebrew itself translates quite easily to weak-eyed, or what that would be to us is, is weak eyesight, um, that she had maybe poor eyesight. But even in that then could have lent itself to uh, aspects of even her own behavior. If somebody's really struggling with their own eyesight, well then, even in the way in which they interact, might they not squint a good bit? Might they not sort of struggle sometimes to see? Might that uh, not to some be seen uh, occasionally as, as odd, especially when compared with a sister who is uh, considered quite beautiful? Um, and so whether, uh, whether truly... Uh, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, something going on or, or simply just in comparison to her sister. And isn't that a common thing? You know, the comparisons between siblings um, and the difficulty of that as, as children grow up. Um, all of this, you know, all of these possibilities no doubt led to her sense or, or lack thereof of maybe her worth, her value, her identity, even, her, even again, her behavior as perceived by others could have contributed to this. And, and so it was clear that amongst these two daughters, one was, one was favored from a physical appearance. Rachel, the younger sister, she was the looker, as it were. She was the one who had caught Jacob's attention. Here's the thing, and, and as we begin to look at this here, because uh, while, while, yes, we're considering in many respects a character study on Jacob and aspects of his character come into play here this evening, um, this particular chapter and a little ways into to chapter 30 gives us a little more insight, in my opinion, into Leah and Rachel and some of the difficulties that they may have faced. And so here, you know, it's Rachel, yes, who catches the attention of, of Jacob's eye, but it's important for us to understand as we begin to look at this here that the Bible tells men to not look for a wife based upon her beauty, but upon her godly character, right? Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, favor is deceitful. 
and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. That's what the Lord exalts. That's what he finds truly beautiful, uh, is a heart that loves him, a godly woman. And so I think it can be noted here, even at the very beginning of this story, that Jacob chose Rachel for her beauty. Truly, I think that's evident within uh, the scripture that we'll consider here this evening. And, and because of that, and because of, I think what you can argue is a wrong motive, it was not a blessed marriage, as we'll see. Not only will Jacob be tricked, as we'll see here shortly, into marrying Leah, the elder sister, but from there he'll continue in his pursuit of Rachel, only to then be caught up in the trials that come along with polygamy, and that then the bitterness of, of barrenness on the part of Rachel. And, and though Jacob's affections will long be focused on Rachel, we will see in the end that Leah was more, she was more greatly blessed that of her would come the line of the Messiah from her son Judah. Then in the end, Leah is the one who would be buried next to Jacob. And so to my comment earlier around Jacob going through some sanctification still in his life, we'll see some change in this man. And in this, in, in, in some of what then starts to, 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 to happen here, some of which I've, I've just sort of teased a little bit there, we see first from Jacob, and then what follows from there, both with Leah and Rachel, we see pursuits, continued pursuits to satisfy a void, a void within from things that this world has to offer, not necessarily from what God has for them. And I think we see that first with Jacob and his continued pursuit of Rachel. It says in verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel. And so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. Now I want you to notice here how specific was Laban in his contract that he made? Not very specific. Jacob should have paid attention, right? Because in many respects, Jacob met his match here um, in Laban. And I, and, I, and I think that the generality of, of Laban's response, that it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, um, is the beginnings of, uh, of Laban's deceit. In fact, rabbinical tradition, if you look at, if you read Torah and you look at some of the commentary on Torah, uh, gives a lot of insight into how the rabbinical view of this entire story actually unfolded. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Now, this is one of those moments and one of those verses, I think, that we often look to. It's the verse that, that sometimes is sort of the, you know, it appears in a marriage conference, right? It's the verse that elicits an, aw, seven years were only but a few days, right? Such is often the case of those years of early relational pursuits, right? But here's the thing that we have to understand, and I don't mean to be the, the one who sometimes bursts a bubble, but the Hebrew word here for love would truly lend itself to a very wide interpretation that would also include lust. And I'm not sure that we can infer, in fact, that, that this was a love rooted entirely uh, in lust, but I don't know that we can infer from this that it was a love that was rooted in a mutual healthy affection. In fact, what we see play out in the deceit that happens, in, in the trickery that happens, I think it probably lends itself even more to the fact that Whatever Jacob's feelings towards Rachel were, were not necessarily what she shared. 
Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. So seven years have now gone by, right? It was, it was just like that for Jacob because he was just so excited about uh, what would come. In verse 22, and Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now notice here, verse 22, who did he gather together? The men, okay? He gathered together the men of the place and had a feast, okay? Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Okay, now when you read this account, you have to find yourself going, how in the world does this happen? Am I right? <laughs> right? you got to be like, well, I, uh, uh, this doesn't make sense to me. Okay? We don't know for sure. <laughs> That's what I'll tell you right now. We, I, some of what I'll share with you here largely comes from rabbinical tradi- tradition, okay? Um, but I think it, it, does, it does make some sense, especially when you consider uh, culture and you consider context. First off, Laban had gathered together all the men of the place that, and made a feast. It doesn't necessarily speak to, Scripture doesn't suggest here that it was as much of a true wedding ceremony. So there's a very real chance here that Jacob had not had, uh, he, that he had limited, if, if any, interaction at all through the course of the evening with his bride. That it could have been more of a party amongst the men. The other thing, oftentimes these types of feasts were easily translated into uh, a big party, okay, where alcohol was present. Many traditions suggest that Jacob had his fair share of alcohol. Uh, that would very much have impaired his, his, his senses and his judgment and his ability to, to maybe even see well or make sense of, of much of what was going on. Thirdly, it says that it was evening, which means that uh, it would have been dark. It would have been especially dark in the tent when she arrived. It says that, uh, uh, sorry, I lost my spot here. Um, so as she goes into the tent, she likely would have been dressed in wedding apparel, okay? So cultural context, she would have been very covered, all right? Um, There's also tradition, again, rabbinical tradition, uh, teachings of Torah that speak to no candlelight in the tent on the evening of the wedding. So it would have likely been very, very dark. So you've got all of these circumstances, okay? Um, Here's the other thing. And this is where you can really start to go more into the, uh, this is an argument from silence, but maybe it's true. What does scripture tell us other than the seven years that he served that were but a day? What does it tell us of his and Rachel's relationship in that time? Does it give us anything? Not really. It gives us no suggestion at all that they, through that time, that we might like to hypothesize about it, especially as he talks about it only being but a few days, uh, that in fact, they were meeting regularly, going out on dates, getting to know each other, spending all this time with each other. We have no evidence of any of that. It could have been, very much been the case that there was little to no interaction through that entire time. It seems maybe unlikely, but it certainly could have been. And so for him to have been relatively unfamiliar with Rachel on that evening, 
enough to truly identify her in, the, in consideration of all those circumstances makes that now a bit more feasible. The other thing is that this all began, and of course we see that with Laban, and it'll become a little bit clearer here in a moment, for Laban, yes, there was a, a he, he was intending to trick Jacob here. But even from the very beginning, this was very much a business transaction. This was a business transaction. And so to assume that there was a great deal of, uh, a, a, of true relational pursuit and building throughout the course of this time is, is, is probably not easily gathered um, or assumed here. And so what we then have is a circumstance where you can start to go, okay, maybe, yeah, I can start to see how this could have happened. It's very different from what we understand in our culture today. And so he goes to Laban. As he wakes up in the morning, he thinks to himself, what in the world has happened? And we see in other examples throughout Scripture, we certainly see this in the, 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 the case of, of Noah, where people have done foolish things. Drunkenness has uh, precipitated various events in the evening that when the individual wakes up the next morning, they go, wait a second, what went on? And so he goes to Laban and he says, why have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. This firstborn thing's a real issue for Jacob, isn't it? Some would say what goes around comes around. You might have heard that saying before, right? We would be inclined to Quote Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Because Jacob, who is a participant in great deception, who himself was called a deceiver, is now on the receiving end of a great deception. One that is rooted in the fact that, listen, there's something that goes along with this whole firstborn thing. We don't bypass that. This, is, this would be, for many, the, the, the true irony, right? And so for Jacob here, he's on the receiving end now of, of great deception, and it doesn't feel good to him. And here he is again in pursuit now of something to satisfy. Now, yes, Jacob has had an encounter with God. His life certainly has been changed, but he's still in this process of sanctification. And any of us know who are walking with the Lord that though we get saved, there's still things that the Lord needs to work out in our lives. And so what we see here with Jacob in this moment is that he's thinking, I want something else. I want this. And Jacob has had a pattern from the very beginning of wanting that which was not technically his pursuing after things, pursuing after value, pursuing after validation. And some of these things we can very much understand. No doubt there was difficulties in his relationship with his father. If his father indeed had a, had a favorite and, 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 and preferred his brother, that would be difficult for him. So constantly seeking after, and we're going to see this happen with Jacob. Uh, it's going to continue now for many years up until that point really when he has an encounter with God again. And he fights with God, he wrestles with God. He says, I'm not giving up until you bless me. Jacob's in pursuit of something, but the problem is what we see in his life is he's constantly pursuing things that will not ultimately satisfy. And so he's got this pursuit of something. And no doubt for Jacob, having had in his heart and in his mind, he had it set on Rachel. And to now be in this situation, that is a tough thing. That's a tough thing to get over. You can, I mean, for him, for seven years, if he had his mind, this is going to be my wife. And now he wakes up and it's Leah. That does have, I'm not going to discount that. That's got to be a tough thing for Jacob. But there's an argument that could be made to say Leah's the one now. you got to move forward. you got to move forward, but he doesn't. He allows the cultural allowances to dictate his continued pursuit. 
He allows what the culture around him says, hey, this is okay. Polygamy's okay. It's okay for you to just take another wife to allow him to continue to pursue that which he thinks is going to satisfy. And how often does that happen in our own lives? Where we allow the cultural allowances, the things around us that, say, that people say, this is okay, don't worry about this, it's okay, to continue to pursue something that we think, oh, this is going to make me happy. When instead we know, rightly, that God's word is saying, no, this is what I have for you. This is what I want for you. This is what is better. Ah, no, I don't want that. And see, we begin to see this pattern here, and we're going to see it play out in his family as well. So then Jacob did so, verse 28, and fulfilled her week. By the way, this gives us a little insight into the fact that a week can be seven years, helps us to understand aspects especially of Daniel and end times prophecy. Um, 70th week of Daniel, those types of things. Uh, And so he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. It's an important one for us to remember there. And he served with Laban still another seven years. See, stubbornness and fleshly desire can prompt us to give much time in pursuit of what we think will satisfy. And I think for a moment here, it's important for us to consider a little bit how how Leah is feeling after all of this. A lot of people, when they look at this example, know differently than when we kind of first encounter it there, right? And you think to yourself, how in the world could this possibly help? And how can you you be tricked and wake up and be like, whoa, wrong lady? But I think we, we, we... at least in, it quickly sort of considered there, you know, here's some circumstances that could have made for, for this. But what of Leah? What of Rachel? What of their involvement, right? Um, let's, let's assume that she really had no idea that there was another plan, that all along throughout those years, it was understood, you're the firstborn, and Laban's continuing to communicate to Leah, you're going to be the one. You're going to marry him. And so then as she prepares for that night, and she's been told to prepare, and she goes in thinking, hey, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to be married off. I'm going to marry this man who's been around, and he comes from a great family, and maybe she's excited. She wakes up in the morning, and he goes, what in the world? Who are you? What have you done to me? I don't want her. Maybe she did know. Maybe it was, maybe it was forced upon her. Maybe it was, maybe it was communicated, hey, listen, you've got to do this, and I know it doesn't quite feel right. Maybe to a degree like Jacob when his mom said, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go in there, and Jacob's thinking a little bit like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I understand, and I know why this is important, and and, and maybe Laban saying to Leah, hey, listen, this is what I need you to do, and I know it doesn't feel quite right, but I need you to just go along with this process. Why, Dad? Why does it have to be done this way? Well, Leah, I, I, you know, there's some things, there's some disadvantages that you have, and you're probably not going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle to marry you off. And so we've got to have deceit. We've, we've got to deceive somebody in order to take care of this. No matter how you slice it, Leah's in a situation where she's beginning to really feel like, man, I'm, I'm nothing. I don't measure up. And so consider for a moment what Leah was set on finding for herself. What was her mentality? What was her state of mind now as she begins to think, how am I going to prove myself? How how am I going to earn my worth or my value? What What is it that I can find to fill this void that exists in my life? What of Rachel in this moment? What of her worth and value? Here now is maybe, and, and I don't know that there was a whole lot of rivalry between her and her sister up to this point. As the younger sister, she was considered more beautiful. She was out and about. Um, you know, she was serv- serving as the shepherdess. Um, nevertheless, now she sees this happening. Again, was she in on the plan? Was she not in on the plan? What was going on here? But now she knows that this man is saying, I don't want her, I want you. What's that confirming for Rachel, perhaps? Again, I understand much speculation here, but for Rachel, is it maybe saying, hey, I am beautiful. My worth is rooted in this. You see, he wants me, not her. You see these things that begin to be sort of confirmed, these 
these biases? What of Jacob's longing at this moment? What was it, again, that he was desiring? It's interesting to think about some of these things, to consider the fact that these are real people and these were real difficult situations. And so then in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, some translations render this that Leah was hated. It gives us a little bit more insight into maybe what this relationship looked like. The Lord saw this, he had compassion on Leah, and he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. And what? And now, therefore, my husband will love me. You see, Leah begins to think, maybe, maybe because of this, now he'll love me. Maybe now that the Lord has done this in my life, maybe now he'll, he'll look upon me. He won't hate me anymore. And so you see here, Leah puts words to a mistake that so many people make. Maybe now I love me. The longing for love, the longing for affection, the longing for affirmation, the longing for value, the longing for worth, the longing for identity. Yet the problem is, as we see here with Jacob and we see it with Leah and we'll see it with Rachel, is that they recognize this void, they recognize this longing, but they're looking for it in one who cannot provide it. She's looking for all of this in her husband. And it's the wrong place to search for it. She conceived again, verse 33, and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. One son, two sons, three sons. Maybe now, maybe now, maybe now. Imagine the agony of this as these months pass by, these years pass by. Maybe now I'll be loved. But then look what happens. Here all of a sudden comes a shift. And we, re- and we learn an important lesson here. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and she stopped bearing. Took, took four times. But on the fourth time she came to a place where as she was, as she was blessed and as she had a son, it was no longer about her husband was now I'm going to praise the Lord. I believe that in this moment, Leah begins to have a little more of a sense of it's he who can fulfill. It's he who can fill the void in my life. She no longer says, perhaps now my husband will love me. Rather, she says, now I'll praise the Lord. And that name Judah means praise. Continued pursuits while coming up empty. And finally, it gives way to Leah looking to the one who can truly satisfy. And while Leah was learning this lesson, Rachel was still struggling through it. Chapter 30, verse 1 says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. For the first time in her life, no doubt, Rachel envied her older sister. And she too begins to look to the wrong things to find fulfillment. Think of the demands that we can often make of men. Think of the demands that we can make of God. These these aren't these moments when when it's uh, your will be done. These aren't these moments when it's truly a surrendered life. It's these moments that are rooted in our original sin where we say, I am God. I will be like God. I want it my way. I want the things that I want. I want the things that I think are going to satisfy. I want the things that I I think are going to fulfill me. And we, we pursue it. We go after it. So she, goes, she, she looks to her husband here and she says, give me children or I shall die. And here in this moment, verse 2, Jacob became very angry 
with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, this is a little bit harsh here if you kind of understand what he's saying because he looks at her and he's saying, Listen, I'm not the problem. He says, I, I, I've had children, so you're looking at me. What, what am I supposed to do? And more than this, he says, Am I in the place of God? Now, here's the deal. I'm I'm certainly not justifying Jacob's anger here. It would seem that he demonstrated a great lack of compassion in his response, but it does not make it less true. Jacob, in effect, says, you're looking to the wrong person here. You're looking to the wrong thing to satisfy. Am I in the place of God? And you see, so often in our emptiness and in our hurt and in our insecurity and in our doubt, we look for fulfillment in all the things which cannot satisfy. And it's so much our tendency. It's my tendency. And so for Rachel, then, this sets off a very reckless pursuit of the flesh. Pride, envy, fear, desperation. What drove Rachel at this point? I mean, think about it. Again, this is one of those moments where you can go, man, where was she at? What was her mental state at this particular place? Where was her heart? Where was her soul? It was saying, I'm desperate. I feel so inferior. It's got to be this. Unless it's this, I'm going to die. And the interesting thing is, Rachel, she's going to have two children of her, of her own, not including what she sort of claims through her maid, the second one's going to kill her. It's not his fault, but she's going to die by childbearing. And so this, this sets off this reckless pursuit of the flesh. And so now I'm going to go through some of this pretty quickly here, and it, and it, and it reads kind of crazy, okay? Because <laughs> then she said in verse 3, here, so, so, th- so th- what's her solution at this point? I'm barren, so what am I going to do? Here's my maid. Here's my maid, Bilhah. So remember, culturally speaking, if she had a maid servant that she could sort of claim the children that came through her, no differently than what we see with Abraham, Sarah. So she said, here's my maid Bilhah, go unto her, that she may bear upon my knees, and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again, and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. You see, Rachel recognizes here, first of all, that this is indeed a fight. She recognizes that there is a quarrel between her and her sister. There's a wrestling that's going on here, but she ignorantly and foolishly believes that she is winning. And this competition becomes too much for Leah to ignore as she's then drawn back kind of into this same foolish pursuit. So this really starts to get crazy here. There's just this competition as to how many children we can pump out. But guys, isn't this often what happens? We, 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 we because of a place of, of hurt or insecurity, we begin then to engage in something that truly is a foolish pursuit. It's not really going to satisfy. And then we go kind of headlong into it, and we start to convince ourselves that, see, see, this is all working out. It's, and we convince ourselves somehow that we're successful, that we're winning here. So she continues to pursue this, and now Leah gets involved. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. So now all of a sudden, you know, here here they're going, look, 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 put another one on the scoreboard, another one on the scoreboard. Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. This is also kind of a funny story. And brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? (laughs) These sisters are bitter, okay? (laughs) They're ready to throw down. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So now they're working out a deal. And (laughs) Jacob's got to be thinking, 
four ladies is a lot, right? <laughs> this, is getting, this is getting pretty crazy here. So when Jacob comes in from the field in the evening, Leah goes out to meet him. She says, you're coming to my place tonight. You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And I don't know if this was like kind of a legitimate transaction or if Jacob's going like, what? <laughs> but, you know, he, he proceeds. Okay, so he lay with her that night. And God heeded Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good dowry. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. So truly, when you think in terms of children, which certainly at this, in this particular time, the ability to have children was, uh, w- w- was something that um, would cause a woman to be very blessed, which she would be seen as being very blessed. And so in the case of Leah, indeed, that was the case. But I mean, just the, the, the conflict that's going on here and the, and, and, and the wrestling between them and the, uh, the, sort of the, the vicious attacks against each other. And, and, and it's sad, too, because really it draws, I mean, as we see here, it draws Leah back in from a place of probably recognizing that God's enough to, oh, no, I'm not going to let this go. And still kind of, maybe, maybe now, maybe now, maybe now. And God remembered Rachel, and God heeded her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So finally she comes to a place where now she is able to have a child. So finally, finally, after all of this, this pursuit, this, this, this destructive relationship with her sister, the, no doubt the, uh, you know, the, the bitterness, as it were, is often said it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? It eats away at us. And no doubt this was the case for Rachel. So finally, she's got to be happy now, right? She gets what she's been longing for, what she's been seeking after all this time. She has to be fulfilled, right? And she named him Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another. Here she's finally gotten what she's been pursuing all along, and what does she say? Give me more. Give me more. It never satisfies. It never satisfies. As we start to bring this to a close here this evening, I need some participation. Will someone look up for me Philippians 4.11? Who's got Philippians 4.11? Let me see a hand. Mackenzie's got it. Proverbs 19.21. Let me see a hand. Proverbs 19.21. Sarah's got it. Psalm 23.1 and 2. Psalm 23.1 and 2. Dave's got it. Exodus 14.14. Who's got it? Exodus 14.14. Stephanie's got it. And last one, Psalm Psalm 127.1. Who's got that one? All right. Trisha's got it. Philippians 4.11. Go for it, Mackenzie. Mm. I have learned in whatever state I am to be, what? Content. You know what follows this in Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, wait a second. That's like the, you know, that's like the, no, I claim that verse to make me a superhero. I can do whatever I want, right? Jump out of a plane. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, that's not a proper application of the verse, right? brings dishonor to his name what is a proper application i can be rich i can be poor i can be blessed i can be cursed i can be in a destitute state wherever i am whatever is going on i can be content 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I think Leah and Rachel and Jacob could have stood to learn a little bit about contentment. Wherever you have me, Lord, it's okay. Proverbs 19.21. God. Many are the plans of a man's heart, right? It's the counsel of the Lord that will stand. How about tw- Psalm 23, 1 and 2? Oh, man. Think about, think about the Lord as your shepherd. We, I pray it over you every week. I pray it over us. What does it mean for him to be a good shepherd? It means he's in charge. He's the one. He's got it. And what does he do? He leads us. And what do we do? We wander off. I'll go over here. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then we're lost. Oh. Here's the thing. Listen, Chris. Let's add, let, listen. Let's add it to the list that I got going lately, right? All these wonderful things about who we are. Sheep. Smart or dumb? Dumb. Who's the sheep? We are. <laughs> right? We are. So yes, they're added to the list of all the things I've called us here recently. And notice I say us, okay? But guys, listen, that's what we do, right? But we have a good shepherd. And what does the shepherd sometimes do when we keep wandering away and getting lost? He yanks at you, right? He's got his staff. What does it say about his rod and his staff? They comfort me. Man, God is caring for us. He is a good shepherd. He knows where to lead us. He knows where we need to be. But we so often go, no, I want that. That looks good. I'm going to go over here. And you know, sometimes a shepherd will break the sheep's legs. That seems cruel, but he will. If a sheep keeps going off and keeps going off and keeps going off, he's going to go, hey, so here's the thing. Boom. You're not going anywhere now, right? Oh, but that's so cruel, right? No, because then he carries the sheep. He picks up the sheep and he carries it. And he nurses it back to health. And you better believe that sheep at that point is like, I'm never leaving again. And not because it's like, oh, I'm so scared to get my legs broken. It's because I now have a relationship. I have a closeness. I feel cared for. I know that's what's, what's best for me is to be right here. And so he makes us to lie down in green pastures. He says, look here, I have this for you. Stop looking for all this other stuff over here to satisfy, because it won't. Exodus 14, 14. Yeah, yeah. The Lord will fight for you. Oh, man. For Rachel in that moment, give me children or I'm going to die to have been encouraged. Look, the Lord will fight for you. He goes before you. Just be still. He's going to take care of it. Guys, there has yet to be a time in my life where I've decided I'm going to give this to the Lord. I'm going to let Him go before me. I'm going to let Him fight my battle that I've ever regretted. There has yet to be a time where I thought, man, I really should have taken action there. I really should have done it. You know, Lord, you didn't do a very good job on that one. I really should have stepped up. Now, He calls us to action, sure. We've got to follow. But to say, Lord, you fight for me. But Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. These ladies were laboring in vain, quite literally. Right? Now, I mean, it's not to say, of course, we have the, we have the tribes of Israel that come from this, right? But I mean, you just think about, what, what, is, what is this? What are they trying to prove? Let the Lord do it. Guys, I want to remind you of, a, of one of those spiritual nuggets of wisdom we've covered before. Wisdom from my pastor. Never forget, 
that you are owned by one who owns it all. And so when you find yourself in that place where you feel like you've just got this longing, this void, and you're wondering, how's it going to be filled? How am I going to get, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Don't forget that your life is no longer your own, Christian. You've surrendered it to him. He owns you, and he owns it all. Which means that not only, as I shared last week, do we have a God who is sovereign, who is over all things, but a Savior who is sovereign as well, who has said, I'll give you all things. I'll make a way for all things. And here's the thing. This void that's in our lives, it's there for a reason. And it can't be filled by just anything for a reason. What is that void for and who can fill it? Jesus. He's the one that can. You don't think he created that, that all of humanity is chasing after fulfillment? That it's just some coincidence? No. It's him. He's created it within us. The problem is, as I was reminded in my devotional time this morning, we so often seek to fill it with things on the horizontal when it was created to be filled by the vertical. To be filled by him. Listen to this truth that Paul David Tripp writes. He says, he covers your past with his grace. He protects, provides for, and empowers you in the present. And he holds every aspect of your future in his sovereign and gracious hand. How amazing is that? As the adage goes, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Amen? So guys, let's all be committed to saying, God, Help me to stop looking on the horizontal for the things that will fill. Teach me, Lord. Bring me to a place where I can say, it's you and you alone. It's only you. And guys, as wonderful as so much of what he has given us on the horizontal is, chief of which are relationships with other believers, those are intended to be the blessings that come from a right relationship with him. But so often we get that switched. And I will tell you, and I think I can say this with confidence on both of our behalves, but I know for Ashley and I, we have absolutely been in a season where the Lord, it seems, is is intent on saying, you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to be satisfied with me and me alone. And as difficult as that is, to get to such a place, man, what a wonderful act of grace. Not pretending to have arrived. (laughs) But I go, man, my future is in his sovereign and gracious hands. That's a good place to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks again for our evening together, Lord, our time in your word. We thank you for how precious it is. We thank you, Lord, that it's alive. Lord, that by your spirit it pierces, Lord, our hearts and our minds. Lord, it goes deep. And it brings transformation, and we thank you for that. And I do pray, Lord, for each of us, myself included tonight, that we take what we've considered here in your word and allow it to do just that, to transform us more and more, to look at those examples of those who have gone before us, Lord, who for, for various reasons and very good reasons, Lord, had hurts, had wounds, Lord, had insecurities that are the product of a lost and a fallen world. But, Lord, may we choose differently to not look to the things which do not satisfy to fill, but to look to you and you alone. And Lord, we know that can be a painful journey. Father, it's one worth traveling. And we know that you're with us. 
and that it's because you care for us, that you are a good shepherd, that you, Lord, will lead us to the places that we need to be. And I'd pray such this evening, Lord, that as our good shepherd, Lord, you'd go before us. Lead us and guide us, Lord, in a way that truly only you can. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And I pray, Lord, for each of these as they follow after you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.